Hey, this is John Willis uh, again with another Deming, a uh, profound Deming podcast. Got a great, great guest today. I, I got to give a little bit of backstory. Um, most of you have heard me say this over and over. I, I got into Golrat first, primarily because of Gene, Gene Kim. And, uh, and as I was sort of learning more about Dr. Deming, you know, I'd go around and people see me speak. And it's uh, Dave Mangate, who's like a, it's one of the early DevOps guys. He sent me uh, this gentleman's book. The Deming Golrat. So it was really the first book that I had actually read the Decalogue on um, on anything about Deming. So it was before I read Out of Crisis, Out of the Crisis, or so I was like sort of specially like like sort of honored and 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 really sort of geeking out here that like you know so you're sort of a you know a, you know a big time dude like me. So um, Dunico, you want to introduce yourself? Hey, hi. Um, this is Ciao. This is Domenico. I mean, I um, I'm calling from Victoria, BC. I'm uh, I'm Italian, as you might probably detect from my accent. Uh, but I moved to Northern America uh, 16 years ago, first to New York, and then um, in the last 10 years, I lived first in in uh, in Toronto, and then uh, in Victoria, BC, the sunny Victoria, BC. Mm-hmm. Um, um, as far as the, I mean, everything that there is to know about me is uh, is in the books that I've written. Just just quickly to summarize, uh, um, you know, I started my Deming journey um, as a as an experimental physicist after having completed my research work in experimental physics uh, about thirty years ago. Uh, uh, I, I was working for the School of Entrepreneurship of the Ministry of Industry in Milan, and they. They were trying to organize courses of, about something that nobody knew anything about called quality. They gave me the standard ISO 9000. Um, I found it very spiritually debasing and, uh, and, and fundamentally self-limiting. So I started to research and, uh, and I found the work of Dr. Deming that opened up a whole, uh, a whole new landscape and, uh, you know, and, and everything is history. Uh, when with history, I mean, uh, you know, I started my journey with Deming that uh, after 30 years remains the uh, most fundamental um, source of inspiration for uh, everything I do. Uh, starting from there, I, um, when I left government, um, a few years later, I set up a little company with a bunch of uh, young graduates and we started to practice uh, the implementation of Deming principles in um, small companies, frankly, I mean, a few dozen, sometimes a few hundred people, and um, try to help them uh, uh, overcome um, the mental blockages that would come from uh, having to get registered, quote unquote, with the ISO standard. You know, at the ministry, I used to run a course called How to Protect Yourself from the ISO 9000. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. People flocking to this course, and and um, and that was a, a wonderful um, a playground to to start building all the links that exist between the fundamental knowledge that Deming developed and uh, a sound uh, entrepreneurial driven um, business practices. So, and what I realized over the years that a company uh, which are essentially driven in their success by the operation. Uh, so they are no nonsense kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, setups that uh, do not play with the shareholders that they do not uh, have to go through uh, the, the rigmarole of, um, of um, um, you know, the, the, the SEC uh, requirements. Uh, those are the ones that can benefit the most uh, from the work of uh, Dr. Deming, that is a uh, complete, uh, completely uh, whole way of uh, uh, looking at organizations. And, you know, I hope I'll be able to explain that in a little bit of detail. Then, uh, uh, you know, proceeding with uh, companies of, uh, you know, just relatively bigger size, I came across this uh, uh, ailing, uh, very famous American multinational. Their name was uh, Union Carbide. Uh, uh, but when I met them, they had, uh, you know, the, the last piece of it was called the uh, UCAR and then GraphTech. It was a 5,000 people company, uh, which was running with, um, you know, 
1.2 billion dollars of debt and 560 million dollars in sale and in four de- in four years we accomplish a complete transformation of that company bringing it to profitability and all the good stuff the share went for two dollars to 16 it was a great success largely inspired by um, the work of Deming and uh, some algorithms of theory of constraints um, by Dr. Goldrat. So that was uh, the battleground where I tested in early 2000, um, you know, most of the spectrum of the things that are possible to do if you uh, leave superstition and embrace knowledge, just quote Deming. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. You know, I, I was thinking as you were talking about that, when we talked about this last time we spoke, and there's like three types of people when it comes to Deming. There's the people like you that fall in love with them, like myself, right? And like, you know, we don't even have to sort of debate why, right? We can just move forward and talk about all the sort of things that we know work instinctively. I mean, I, I, I don't want to go off too far, but I think the thing about like hit me about Deming and everybody I've ever interviewed is that it just made sense. And then there's the group of people that tend to try to debate that he's not relevant. <laughs> and then there's people who just don't know him, which is fine. But I guess the, the question I have is like, why do you think that, like, there's something about Dr. Deming that certain people get that aha moment? Um, not, you know, I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't say, I mean, I've, I've seen people say, well, it took a little while or this or this, but at some point they're like, like, this is the right way to do things. Mm-hmm. And I'm just not sure why, like, what, what is the thing about him that that sort of like turns that light bulb on well certainly for you and what do you think the other people that you've known uh yeah you mentioned falling in love um and even there if i may there are two ways of falling in love (laughs) Uh, you meet somebody you fall in love and then it, it may last forever uh but it becomes uh you know sometimes it could be tumultuous and there could be you know a lot of uh um uh hurdles to overcome in this uh um, you know, a passion-fired uh, relationship, or there could be a quieter way of getting to know somebody and let that person grow uh, in you. Uh, for me, has been a, a little bit of a combination because uh, clearly I could not, um, you know, you, you certainly remember in early 90s, the discourse on management was still largely dominated by uh, cost accounting type of consideration. You know, management uh, was considered like uh, you know the 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 a little child, the, the little child, the minor child of economics, and uh, the entire management uh, structure, uh, starting from the business school, was essentially designed to help. Uh, people learn how to uh, raid a company rather than to manage it. Uh, Also, the discourse was uh, largely dominated by uh, people with with a background in uh, economics or um, politics or um, other subjects. And, And instead, the first thing that I noticed is that Dr. Deming was a physicist. And by uh, probing a little bit, you know, by uh, snooping around a little bit, you discover that Deming did nothing but physics until his late 30s. And then he switched to uh, statistics uh, um, in a sort of very, very um, theoretical way. Uh, So he developed major work in theory of sampling uh, as applied uh, to the production of crop uh, for the Ministry of Agriculture, but also... Uh, to marketing research. So uh, in his two fundamental books on theory of sampling and sampling design in business research written in the 50s and in the 60s, he lays the foundation uh, for what people should really learn in business school about marketing instead of all the Kotler stuff. And, uh, you know, and uh, so um, for me, um, it was, uh, um, you know, I, I realized that right away the magnitude of what he was saying, but at the same time, uh, it allowed me to, to get onto a path of discovery and go uh, as deep as I could mm-hmm. in, the, in the reasons why he was right. When, when he was saying uh, uh, it just makes sense, for me, that would not have been enough. Right. Uh, so I, you know, I had to go and dig as deep as I could in the foundational elements of Deming's doctrine, 
which may be, many people may not know. You know, it's uh, the whole edifice of quality rests on uh, understanding why uh, the coefficients for the building of the control charts are derived in that way. Uh, and so uh, everything else uh, comes from there. Uh, everybody, everybody, or many people are, have been drawn to Deming because of his humanitarian yeah. um, uh, approach to management. But De Deming certainly was a wonderful man. But uh, most importantly, Deming was a scientist that saw, um, uh, you know, the the need for eliminating barriers, the need for driving out fear, and 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 these needs stemmed from a statistical understanding of the world. So you don't want to eliminate fear in the workplace because you're a good man uh, or you want to keep it because you're a bad man. You want to eliminate fear because fear increases variation in the way you execute your processes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to eliminate the barriers among staff and people, not because you want everybody to love each other. Yes, you do. But you want it because that increases variation. So the whole lens of understanding variation within a systemic context was the thing that drew my attention and enabled me to continue my path of um, uh, a deeper and deeper understanding of Dr. Deming and how to bring Dr. Deming's work to fruition in as many situations as possible. No, you know, you. Um, it's funny because I, I said I fell in love with him, but I think my journey has been a little over 10 years of my fascination with Deming. And, and he does, um, there is this sort of thing about like, you just keep going deeper and deeper. So he, he, um, he like, it isn't just that I love him. It is that he has sparked this constant sort of idea to learn more. And it's just something about the way, even the way he sort of expresses himself in his very sort of curt way. Mm -hmm. You sort of like, like that's a mystery. Yeah. You know, why, why did he say that word you know right. and yeah so no I, I think you're right I mean even like even for myself I it's not fair to say I fell in love with him just at an instinct it was basically the journey yeah of of trying to find out this sort of you know these true norts of how things should work better right yeah and, and uh, true to his um, uh, academic and cultural background uh, Deming uh, um uh, he tried uh, um, every day of his professional life to identify the foundational principles on which competitiveness and uh, the wealth of nations, uh, as well obviously organizations and, and larger systems, can be built. So the theory of profound knowledge is what he uh, developed not long before dying in 93, um, which... Uh, which is the way to summarize the 14 points, or in his words, the 14 points come naturally from understanding of the elements of the theory of profound knowledge, right. which um, still today, uh, still today, uh, they appear as a kind of alien uh, to any um, major um, uh, organization. I don't think that there is a, uh, in the mid, in 20, in, to 20, 2007, uh, you know, the reason why I came to America was, you know, to follow a large project I, I was part of. And we made um, uh, 137 presentations to raise uh, $600 million uh, to buy, um, you know, a company and start a transformation. And in this 137 presentation, we talked to funds uh, and money manager mm -hmm. that would, were representing, you know, the equivalent of a mid-sized African country right. in terms of dimension. And only three of them out of 137 had heard about Deming. Yeah. And none of them had heard about Goldratt. So in 2007, wow. the, the capital, you know, the, the people that have the people that have the uh, obligation to deploy capital uh, into organization, they knew nothing about Deming. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Well, it's yeah. So well, that sort of begs the the other question that that sort of gnaws at me, and it's really two part. Like first part is, it seems to me a lot of people take the easy route out and say, you know, Deming doesn't make any sense because all he wants to do is reduce variation. 
Mm-hmm. And then, and I, you know, that sort of gets me sort of angry on so many different levels. So I, you know, I want, and, and here's the thing, these are really smart people. I mean, like we could say maybe they're not smart because they say that, but I mean, they're published works and, and people who are well-respected and have created like great bodies of work will say that. So that's sort of first question, like, why do you think that's the case? But hold on to the second one too, which is, when I first, you know, when I finally understood system of profound knowledge, I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> wait, why isn't everybody jumping all over this? Because it has those four lenses. It's the first sort of, of any of the things I've seen in my now, what, 40 years of doing this stuff, where they took, you know, sort of technical stuff, um, you know, the, the psychology, the epistle, I mean, like, why, did, why is it so, but I want to go back to the first one. Why do you think people sort of pigeonhole? I mean, I even heard, read that Duran said, you know, I said Deming focused on statistics. I focused on management. I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> and, and but it's a common thing that you see is these sort of people that just say, oh yeah, 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 he did good, but only focused on variation. Well, you know, it's this is a you asking me why. And uh, frankly, I do not have an answer for that other than ignorance. Um, But fundamentally, what Deming did was to um, essentially uh, tell the world that um, unless, okay, so let me me step back a second. Um, In 1980, uh, uh, um, uh, Van Nostrand, republished the original Schuert book called The Economics of Quality Manufactured Product. And Deming wrote the preface to to the book. And uh, he said, it's going to take 50 years for the world to understand and another 50 to see the whole spectrum of implication. So I can say that um, uh, very, very few people understand the ramification of understanding and managing variation, very, very few. And I'm not talking about just uh, the um, mathematical aspect of it, right. uh, which is fundamental. Obviously, one needs to understand. But what is more important is the line that he draws between a management that takes place in a statistically predictable environment versus the kind of management that has to take place in, a, in an environment which is not statistically unpredictable. Mm-hmm. So um, when, you, when you start asking yourself questions concerning variation and how it impacts the life of individual as well as organization, you begin to have a glimpse of the magnitude of the scope of the work of Dr. Deming. I'm getting chills. Uh, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, go ahead. Keep going. So no, I just... Uh, when I, um, for, for several years, to be honest, not too many, four or five, uh, I uh, used all the energies I had at the time. I was much younger, so I had more <laughs> okay, to try and bring the two camps, uh, the Deming camp, which was essentially made by middle-aged academics, and the, the, the Goldrat camp, which was made essentially of practitioners, very hands-on kind of people to see how the two things could come together and what was the the mental shift that was necessary to see how these two things could come together and uh, to no avail. People Mm. were in both camps. They were sort of blinded by almost dogmatically by things that I have to say they did not fully understand. Uh, Even uh, academics of a, of a certain caliber uh, that I had the possibility to talk to in the Deming camp uh, and high-level practitioner that they were commanding ridiculous fees to bring uh, non-negligible improvements in companies. Right. They had a really, really hard time to understand the foundational elements of Deming doctrine because what Deming did was to open up a new realm of systemic knowledge that is made by the interactions of the elements of profound knowledge. So if you look at the profound knowledge, you say, okay, psychology, 
What has it got to do with with the statistics? And uh, epistemology, which is a uh, very abstruse, you know, uh, body of philosophical knowledge, what has it got to do with variation? And systems theory, you know, the foresters of the world, what do they have to do with, with statistics? Deming laid the foundation for us and prompted us to look at the interdependencies, which after nearly nearly 30 years of work, I can say I'm beginning to have some understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I'm not sure yeah. I have explored every single avenue because it's a ever-growing right, right, and right. Um, very, very difficult to handle, what we say complex, uh, difficult to handle um, network of interdependencies. And people don't like that. People like to think uh, in linear terms. Okay, so um, in spite of all the research that has been done in the last 30 years about the non-linearity of our thinking, you know, you look at Wall Street and how they do it, they think linearly. That's right. You know, uh, you think of how people make investments, they do it linearly. Mm -hmm. You think about how people evaluate their human capital, they do it linearly. And uh, because by fragmenting and putting in silos things and looking at them individually and thinking of them linearly, our mind can make sense of it. When you move onto a more complex realm, that becomes a lot more complicated and people don't want to take that challenge. It's like flying uh, um, visual and flying uh, uh, with uh, with instrumentation. So when you fly visual, uh, you, you, all you have to do is just to rely on your senses and enjoy and enjoy the ride. When you fly at night, you have to you can't rely on that. You have to rely on uh, on the on the instruments. And um, and uh, embracing them means to fly instrumental. Uh, and uh, the instruments are essentially very abstract mathematical concepts. Uh, they need to be understood and morphed into a coherent practice. The 14 points are a clear example of that. So as I was saying before, eliminate barriers. It it doesn't have, well, the implication is that people work better, but the reason why Deming said it was profoundly uh, profoundly scientific. So that's that's why you want to eliminate barriers. Well, you know, I guess the one thing I was thinking as you were going through that is there are other industries that, you know, and again, I, I don't if I, I took an operations research course because I really, it, it was how I finally understood statistical process control, right? Like I, I kept trying to read everything from a soft science of how it worked. And and I, at some point, a friend of mine said, you know, you probably should take an operations research course. And then like they explained, you know, the patterns, the common cause, special cause, like it, and that, those industries, as far as I can tell, live and die by this. So they're not like questioning, like it's, you know, uh, instrument control systems and stuff like that. Like a lot of that stuff, like they, they don't sort of question how these things work, but for some reason. Um, yeah, they don't question it uh, in a sort of dogmatic way. So okay, uh, okay, yeah. uh, um, when, okay. Um, uh, engineers are very good at finding good solution to practical problems. Okay. Um, God bless them. Yeah. Uh, but they are less, uh, capable of um, the conceptual abstract jump, jump that is needed in order to embrace uh, um, the more mathematical aspects of it. You know, the, the greatest disciple of Deming, uh, the man who has laid the foundation for everybody to understand Deming, is a, actually, he was a physicist himself, he's a physicist himself uh, Dr. Don Wheeler uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, he has written the ultimate guide of understanding uh, the Deming's thinking through the lens of variation. And if you study those books, which are eminently enjoyable, um, you you see in every page that he writes why, for the majority of people, bringing those concepts to the boardroom is practically impossible. Mm -hmm. Because what Deming, one of the things, if I may, uh, that has completely spaced out 99% of the uh, financial world is the fact that an Excel spreadsheet would lead you astray very easily because it forces you into a linear pattern. Uh, And instead, Deming pointed out that nature and in general phenomena happens within a natural realm of oscillation. 
Now, this simple fact uh, branches out, has ramification in every aspect of management, which is uh, largely uh, misunderstood. Uh, so uh, you, you may remember that um, in the 80s, the dean of the Sloan School of Management at MIT was a Lithuanian gentleman called Myron Tribus, who was also the vice president for R&D at Xerox. Uh, when he invited Deming to Xerox, uh, and he went at length saying all the things that they're doing and all the things that they're doing at MIT, Deming said to him, and this is what Dr. Tribus told me in, yeah. uh, in England uh, in early 90s, he said, uh, he said to him, he said, you don't know what you're doing, do you? And, uh, and he said, I went home and I cried all night and then I left everything and I decided to spend the rest of my life uh, trying to promote these concepts, good, yeah. which is, uh, you know, Deming books have been published by the MIT Press, you know, yeah. the School yeah, yeah, of yeah, Engineering. Yeah. But if you look at their MBA, there's no trace. Well, no, I, 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 you know, I have this thing. I asked you this when we first talked that like, like, I don't want to call it a conspiracy, but like. It's sort of very convenient on all lean discussions that come out of like Boston, either Harvard or uh, MIT, that it just like act like the man never existed. I've even told you that there's a professor, very profound, not to use overuse the word, who told me that that Deming had nothing to do with Toyota's success, right? Like we don't even need to go there. Um, But then in in Michigan, I mean, they don't sort of like, they don't have any statues of them. But they are clear to mention him when he should be mentioned. And I just always found that just as a person who is learning, like, wow, you know, these people who've written some good stuff act like they didn't exist. And even to the point where a professor tells me, like, uh-huh. I almost dropped my jaw. Like, did you just say uh, you know, it had nothing to do with Toyota? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's um, you know, talk about MIT. In 1990, uh, Peter Senge wrote this book called The Fifth Discipline. Right. Yeah, and it. I was profoundly disappointed when I read it. Really? Because, yeah, because uh, he was not mentioning Deming at all. Okay. In the 96, re, uh, new, 96 edition of the okay. book, uh, the first 10 pages of the book are dedicated to a long and heartfelt apology. It's a doctor. Yeah. And saying everything that I've written, Deming has said, much better than me. So yeah, yeah, this yeah. is about to apologize for, but again, he had sold 10 million copies of his books and uh, he had influenced governments like, uh, you know, you know, the Finnish government embraced Peter Senge's to a fault. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, and um, so it takes an incredible amount of uh, intellectual humility mm-hmm. yeah. to understand the scope, the magnitude, the monumentality of Deming message and not feeling overwhelmed. So if you're an illustrious academic and you realize that you've been saying the wrong things all along, (laughs) it will be difficult for you. If you sell an MBA, which is based on flawed teachings on leadership and other fantasies um, for $100,000, then changing everything, yeah, yeah, no, rewrite fine. everything through the lens of theory of profound knowledge, it doesn't make much economic sense. And if you're the MIT that lives off essentially uh, what they do with these labs, where they create fantasies that and fans, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> MIT, MIT is five percent Nobel Prize level of work, which we all worship. Right. Okay, physics in technology, fantastic, five percent. Right. 95% is the hallucination that they sell to the market, to students that join because they want the alumni. And they keep perpetuating that. And you just, you don't kill the, the, the goose that produces golden eggs. You, you know, I love this because when we when I talked to you the first time, you said, you sure you want me to be on the podcast? I might. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Time. I'm like, absolutely, I want you on my podcast. Um, and uh uh, you know, one of the things I was in my notes last time, I thought, you know, I think this is a big deal, which is, you know, which started maybe with your sort of Deming goal, right? And, but you said that, like, that, like, the thing you noticed about them, and I think what you've taken in your career is storytelling. 
what's the importance of storytelling? Well, we, you know, um, one of my partners uh, wrote a, a beautiful novel that's been sold, that we can proudly say, in 43 countries, not many, many thousands of uh-huh. copies, but yeah, yeah. 43 countries called The Human Constraint. Uh, okay, that was not a commercial. Uh, no, these commercials are, I mean, <laughs> so, no, no, I, I mean, people who tell good stuff, like I say, there's no such thing as a shameless plug. They're plugged. <laughs> I mean, like, no, it, yeah. I would just introduce storytelling. I know, I know. You know, we, we have uh, we have written several books, tried to tackle every angle. Okay, so the the uh, the academic stuff, the the narrative stuff, the 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 you know the the you know every possible angle with which we could exemplify certain concepts, and uh, we found that storytelling, the way Goldratt wrote four of his books, actually, right. I, um, is effective because it triggers in people, um, you know, some uh, connections that are not normally activated through a more uh, conventional academic study. So storytelling is important. However, I have to say, otherwise I wouldn't be sincere, that storytelling can only take you so far. And let me explain. The goal has sold 10 million copies. Okay, Larry Gard, who is the publisher, a very good friend of mine, he published my first book. Um, he became a multimillionaire. He made three times as much as Goldrat made out ah, of that. There you go. Okay. He was translated in 35 languages, and there is no uh, top executive in the Fortune 500 that hasn't read that book. That's right. Have you seen application of TOC at corporate level? None. Very rare. Very rare. I did very see rare. one at Delta, but yeah. But, but, at yeah, plant yeah. level, as many as you like. But at corporate level, none. Okay. Right. None. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Why? Because storytelling, by its nature, has to hide every element that prevents the reader from falling in love with the narrative. Right. Right. right yeah. So uh, when <laughs> when we read the 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 Phoenix uh, the Phoenix Project. All right, be nice now. There's just one place yeah. I've got to protect. Okay, so, uh, yeah, I, I have to be nice. I have to be nice. Let's say that uh, we loved the passion and we loved the love that uh, that the writers had for Dr. Goto Goldra's works, and we were very appreciative of that. But obviously, the narrative was very, very, very poor. I mean, literature is something else, you see. So, you know, in order to write storytelling, you have to be able to do storytelling. So you have to have in some way versed in the way of telling a story. So, uh, and as we are very pedantic, when we approached the the storytelling, uh, you know, we took advice from very famous playwrights in America to make sure the story was... uh, so, so just to answer your question, uh, storytelling is important. Let's right. try not to go overboard with it. That, that's a good point. Right. So yeah, even, I mean, to be honest with you, like, all right, so I love Gene. You know, he's been incredible to, for my career. He's a dear friend. Um, and I think the Phoenix Project has changed the landscape completely. If, if like, sort of the, the new breed of IT people, he's done more for them understanding GORAT. Um, he doesn't really do a drum buffer rope story in that in that book but be honest with you even in the goal to your point of a storyteller i mean to really understand toc you didn't get it from the goal you had to then say okay i need to learn more and even gene said that what they did is they took um a master's class in university of washington to better understand how they needed to write the phoenix project whether they were able to again I, i think your point is well made is that if you're writing storytelling, you have to capture the imagination of the people. And if you bog down on all the particulars and technology bits and bytes, you're not able to do that. Well, yes. Um, uh, in America, you have uh, um, uh, you have this incredible ability to uh, create a fascinating environment for people to learn. Let's talk about astronomy. Let's talk about cosmology. The planetariums in America are fantastic, okay? And they, they're done with a very noble educational intent to attract attract youngsters that can fall in love with astronomy, the stars, and everything. Mm-hmm. What is the percentage of those kids 
can really understand, will ever understand what's happening in the sky. Very few. Yeah. Because in order to understand what's happening in the sky, you need a foundation of tensor calculus that only very few people have the stamina, the determination, the ability to pursue. So let's not confuse uh, inspiring people and teaching people. No, no, I, 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 I got your point. I, 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 like, I, I totally agree and I get it. And then, um, yeah, and I think that is a good point of there's a line of which this is sort of telling. Yeah, the other thing that we, we talked about that I think is just incredibly fascinating is um, you said that you um, learned as much as you could. You, so you found Deming, you found Golrat, and then you learned as much as you could learn from Golrat. Mm-hmm. And then you went to other sources for Golrat. Yeah. Yeah. Go, oh, that's just fascinating stuff. <laughs> okay, so this is going to be the most highly controversial podcast you've ever made. So This is good, though. Yeah. Okay, so let me take a stab at it. Um, any um, normally intelligent, dedicated person can learn with the right guidance and the right study everything that has to do with the, uh, the, all the fundamental algorithm of TOC because they live in a realm of applied maths that is accessible to everybody. Goldratt has made life very simple uh, for anybody who's willing to understand that. Uh, But there is something which has been uh, majestically misunderstood in 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 TOC, which are the thinking processes they first unveiled in a book called... uh, uh, necessary but not sufficient in 94. Now, that book, uh, Ellie did not publish anything connected with uh, the, the thinking processes since then. He let everybody else and their parents to write about it, creating, in my opinion, the most unbelievable confusion that there is concerning the tools. And let me, let me clarify what I'm saying. I read, uh, I mean, because you know, I have to, but uh, you know, I, I am aware of a, a plethora of snake oil charmers that go out peddling uh, uh, the thinking processes as the logical tools something that the IT community can benefit from uh, to develop their their software. Uh, I hear people saying that the logical tools of TLC uh, have to be applied in a rigorous manner where every single step of the logic this is like the uh, this is like the 27 steps to learn lean, right? Yeah, that's exactly that's right. yeah, yeah. okay. So so when I uh, decided to be serious mm-hmm. about this particular body of knowledge, that I had to take a step uh, out of the, the beaten path. So I had to come to terms that what the kind of logic that Goldratt was talking about was, well, actually, he told me, he said to me, he said, if you want to learn and be really good at this, you have to go to your rabbi that will teach you Talmud. He assumed, as I was very close to a dead coin, which is he was his, uh, his wingman, uh, um, so he assumed that I was Jewish. So I went to my wife's cousin who had converted to Judaism, uh, as a young, as a young woman. And I said, what is this? And she laughed and she took me to a bookstore and she bought me a little book called the essential Talmud written by Adin Steinsatz who passed away last year, who is the, the director of the Institute for Talmudic studies in Israel. And when I opened that book, which is the only thing I was able to afford intellectually at the time, mm. uh, the first 10 pages, TOC summarized. So if you want to know what TOC is, take this little booklet called The Essential Talmud, and you will read in the first 10 pages what TOC is about. And what TOC is about is a way for you to absorb, accumulate, and develop new knowledge. In order to do that, you have to leverage faculties that partially have to do with your rational side, but most importantly, with your more emotional side. 
they call sefirot, meaning the 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 uh, the attributes that we have. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, only three of them are rational: the ability to have intuition, the ability to develop an analysis, and the ability to deploy knowledge. But everything else has got to do with how you harness the power of your emotions. So uh, my journey, my real journey with TOC started there. And uh, and uh, all of a sudden, the way I came across Dr. Deming, that was, uh, you know, the, the greatest, uh, you know, uh, the greatest gift I could have possibly received from, from a professional standpoint and cultural standpoint. Uh, then I came across all of a sudden uh, the best and the brightest in uh, this kind of uh, uh, line of work, so to speak. So the people that within uh, Judaism, they are concerned with explaining uh, the Holy Scriptures, what they call the Torah, you know, which means book of instruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they, the, they, they, they studied the best way of elucidating and extracting meaning from the Torah. Mm. And in order to do that, they have to leverage um, uh, the ability of the mind to conceive cause and effect relationships, Mm. what Goldratt talks about in the tools, in the thinking processes, they go way beyond what logician uh, Mm. uh, could conceive. When I asked Goldratt if he had checked with logicians the validity of what he was saying, he laughed at me and he said, first of all, I'm a physicist. I don't need any logistician. That's logistician. Right. Yeah, that's right, yeah. The second one is that this kind of logic doesn't come from science. It comes from somewhere else. Right. So that was my path, which has, for the last 16 years, has opened up wow. a completely new realm of understanding, which prompted me to do something that I was very reluctant about, which was to try and take a step forward. Because in my nature, I would have been content to work with Deming and Goldratt and do the best of it. Yeah. But in opening up this new realm of knowledge, I had to realize that it was falling on me, uh, that befalling me the an obligation to take these things a step forward. So I, I definitely want you to go deeply. And I got one last question because I do want to find out, like you explained some of the work you're working on. I've looked at some of it. Um, the um, the thing is, I just, you, had, I think you implied or said that, uh, and I think you sort of implied this, that Gorat in his later years actually started explaining some of this stuff where he didn't. Really yeah, 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 yeah. And nobody understood them. Okay. So nobody yeah, understood that he was trying to tell everybody where yeah, it came yeah, from. Yeah, especially in the last year of his life, they were severely ill. Uh, he went back to his roots. We we must never forget that Dr. Goldratt comes from a very, very illustrious uh, uh, family of Talmudic scholars. His father was uh, the inspirational force behind the, the education system in the newly created state of Israel. Oh, wow. The wow. same Goldratt, he studied physics, but he did it at Barilan, which is the religious university uh, of Israel. So, um, um, so what I'm trying to say is that TOC has 20% to do with the science and 80% to do with the, a thinking tradition that if you don't have some level of grasp of, uh, you you will all, you will be just an instructor. You will never yeah. truly understand what he was driving at. And when uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, I've written a couple of books on the topic, quoting Drubavitch uh, Rebbe, which is the uh, greatest spiritual mind uh, of Judaism, certainly last century, um, uh, as a source of inspiration. But more than that, as the person who has framed for me the um, uh, the has framed for me the area within which TOC can find application, which is not about drum. Drama Ferop is just an offspring. Uh, critical change is just an offspring. Mm-hmm. A very precise concept, which is constraint, and constraint uh, is not something negative. Constraint is the place where you generate the maximum value. And the word constraint 
in theory of constraint comes from a concept of Egypt, Mitzrayim, which is where the Jews had to leverage what they had in order to get into the promised land. So when you start looking at the body of knowledge of TOC, if you look at the tools, what is the transition tree? The transition tree is the way Goldrat has exemplified for everybody what in Judaism is called Shulchan Aruch, which is the instructions, how to do things. Okay, so the conflict cloud of TOC is a way on a superficial level to solve the dispute. In reality, is to dig deeper in the most fundamental assumptions you make about reality. And in going through that pattern, you alter the way you perceive the world and the way you are in the world. And in that sense, TOC is scary because he moves you constantly beyond your cognitive horizon. It's the counterintuitive nature of things. I mean, even when DevOps first started, um, even, you know, sort of the early days is like, we'll never, ever, ever operate like that. You know what I mean? And, you know, because it's this... um, this initial, you know, like the things that are like when, when you sort of described uh, what people were doing in DevOps was like a good friend of mine created one of these um, early presentations of how they were doing 10 deploys of software at Flickr, Yahoo a day. And I, you know, I sort of used literary license and saying people were throwing up in the back of the room. You can't do this. This will destroy humankind, you know, but um, so, yeah, I think that's a part of, of, of this. Uh, so the, the stuff you're working on now, I, I think that, one of my best um, sort of Demingisms is there was a, a student in one of his classes that um, had taken a class maybe in like 87, eight, I don't know when it was, but then a couple of years later took an, another class. And they sort of raised a hand and said, uh, Dr. Deming, you know, two years ago, you said this and now you're saying that. And, you know, and I can imagine um, in his deep voice going, I'll never apologize for learning. You know, like, so I, th- I think the, the point you made earlier is, um, like, like y- if you sort of look at a line in Out of the Crisis and say, there, and I've had these people do, look what he said here. I'm like, yeah, that's not really what it's all about. So, like, you've, that this is what you said, you've gotten to a place where you've understood, like, the go right at a level I've never heard anybody describe it this place. Right. And so for some number of years, you've been basically trying to expand that. So go ahead and tell everybody about that. Right. Um, okay. Um, uh, one of the most common misconceptions is that TOC is kind of operation research in disguise. Okay. Uh, it's not operation research uh, for a myriad of reasons. And I don't want to get into that because if there is something boring to me is to talk to engineers, mm-hmm. which I have to do most of the time, but you know, it's very boring. Uh, um TOC and the concept of constraint, they stem from the idea of a limitation used as a leverage point. So that is the philosophical underpinning, okay? Now, uh, I want you to understand, and, I, and I'm sure that, you know, if people, if you have people following this podcast, uh, you will have a, a lot of questions about it, um, is that the foundational um, a paradigm of TOC. It's a it's a word that you find in Genesis, and it's called ufaratsta, which means continually overcoming barriers. Okay, continuously overcoming a situation that limit you. Now, you don't know anybody that wants to live a life that is predicated upon continuously break boundaries, and yet. I, I want to thank you for quoting Deming when he says, I never apologize for learning. Deming almost intuitively understood that the essence of life is learning, that life is a learning process. There are some theory in biology that l- define life as a cognitive process, mm-hmm. okay, a process of cognition, which may happen independently from the brain. And in fact, it happens in the guts. Right, right. So, right. So, this idea that for Deming was intuitive, essentially, it's completely codified in Jewish culture, completely codified. Okay. This idea that uh, life exists 
as a continuous overcoming of uh, the strictures that the Almighty puts you in, okay? And that you have to overcome because those are the tests that he sends you. This is something that has permeated entirely the work of Dr. Goldratt and has been understood by virtually nobody. Uh, um, he might, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, deny this, but if you interview Larry Gad, which is by far and large the most interesting person in the Goldratt world, he came all the way from uh, Boston uh, uh, to here, to Victoria, to tell me that the things that I've written are my things, that Goldratt had in the back of his mind but he had never been able to take them out from Goldratt. Goldratt has been reluctant wow. Wow. to say these things all his life because he didn't want his approach to be labeled too Jewish. In doing so, and God bless his soul, he has done an enormous disservice to TOC mm -hmm. because has prevented TOC to really show what can do and attract the right people. Because today we have a slew of chipmunks around the world blabbering nonsense about TOC. You know, I, far from me, the idea of uh, presenting myself as a guru or anything, but uh, I've done non-negligible things, in non entirely negligible things in management. And today I am working actively in supply chains, which are extremely complex. And uh, the starting point is to take different actors that come from different links in this chain and make them understand that either the paying customer is happy or nobody makes money. And you start from that by identifying what is the set of fundamental assumptions they make on how uh, a flow of events through the chain should go. Now, what is important about this is the training that, that you do to your uh, synapses to make them conceive cause and effect relationships that you couldn't see before. And in order to do that, you have to embrace the paradigm. And if you don't come for religious, ethnic, or personal convictions to a paradigm of continuous learning, I will never apologize for learning, okay? Uh, if you don't come from that paradigm, TOC becomes impenetrable, or worse, it becomes you become mired in a series of techniques that sooner or later will get into conflict with right. some and accounting right. gimmicks. What works now is not going to work in the future. That's right. Yeah. So it's um, it, I'm not advocating uh, for people necessarily to study. Um, uh, bodies of knowledge um, that might not belong to their culture. They might not feel affinity with. Right, right. And I'm not saying that in order to be a good uh, a TOC practitioner, you should be an expert on that. What people, though, should understand is that the thinking processes of TOC, they have virtually nothing, virtually nothing, or very little to do with the uh, the logic of a computer programmer, which, by the way, is incredibly flawed as we look at the way computer program works. So the logic of the programmer is inherently flawed. And uh, they, you know, I know that you're talking to IT people a lot. So IT people should understand that their mental circuitry is um, very, very limited. And if they want to expand their ability to conceive good functioning software, they should try and learn different ways of uh, reasoning cause and effect in a much more emotional way, okay? Geeks and never produce anything. Only in the Big Bang Theory, uh, Sheldon wins. Uh, yeah, yeah, in, yeah, reality, yeah. in reality, people that do major discoveries, they're not geeks. That's right. Okay, so... Uh, uh, geek no, I, I I have a good friend of mine. He's a he's a physicist, and he's one of the he's sort of legendary for people. He he basically invented something called infrastructure as code genre, which like he created a whole way for people to install infrastructure to sort of a code. It, it's a brilliant stuff. And like at one time we were just hanging out, and he was sort of and I'll probably mangle this, but he said that um you know probably the biggest problem with computer programming was the the binary nature of it. Like if you could do a redo, 
You'd be like, why is it like if you know? It's like it's like you know, so on or off, right? All your all your programming constructs. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be? And I'm probably mangling what he exactly said, but the point I I was like, what if you went back in time and said like, let's create? Well, you know, almost what what quantum's trying to do now, but that we don't want to go there. But um, but if you could have thought about programming in a way that wasn't pigeonholed to sort of bimodal struct construct, anyway, yeah. So, um, but you have a product or a solution and stuff that you're using. We, um, okay. So, um, following a, a um, more and more evolved uh, uh, way of uh, um, putting together in a cohesive and coherent way, um, Deming and Goldratt, uh, if you look at the Decalogue, there is a step of the Decalogue which says create a suitable organizational structure. At the time, neither Oded nor I had uh, an idea of how this structure should be. We knew that we have to eliminate barriers. We knew that we have to drive out fear. We knew that uh, there was something inherently wrong with uh, the conventional functional hierarchy, but we don't, did not have an answer. That answer became clearer and clearer to uh, my team and I over the years um, and took the form of what we called the network of projects. So essentially, uh, if you look at the Deming production viewed as a system, um, in order to make that operational, uh, we have uh, inserted a constraint in that uh, in that diagram uh, where uh, all the other arrows, they have to be built in a way that subordinate to that constraint with the buffer and with the control charts that monitor the oscillation mm-hmm. of the buffer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a cartoon. You can find it in all of our books. Uh, how do tra- how do we transform that cartoon into an operational in the se- Deming sense in an operational right. way? You know, in an operational way, uh, how do you transform that cartoon into a company that can function day one? And we developed this concept starting from the foundational elements of what an organization is. An organization is you know people that work in an organization they do fundamentally two things. One is to operate repetitive processes, the cleaning, the closing of the books, preventive maintenance, whatever. Or they work on projects, which is a marketing campaign, which is adopt a new technology, whatever. So in order to uh, overcome the barriers, okay, eliminate barriers, we need to have a practical operational way to tell people what to do when they come to work. Otherwise, if we don't create for people a path, a pattern of work and growth within an organization, uh, people will never switch. People will always refer to their boss and their subordinate, and they will never come out of that prison. So we developed the conceptual infrastructure for doing that, the methodology uh, to deploy it, blah, 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 blah. But then we had the problem of exemplifying that. We had the problem of showing how that could actually work. And so very reluctantly, uh, uh, we tackle first the mathematical problem, uh, producing over 100 pages of beautiful romance, mathematical romance, and then we embedded that into a software, into a code, which is now available for everybody. And, uh, you know, everybody who is serious about uh, uh, taking, a, taking a shot, uh, transforming their organization into a systemic one, and as is not a faint-hearted, as Deming would say, uh-huh. uh, can use our software and God bless them. We, we, we are not a software house. We just made it available right. uh, for a fee. Well, for individuals, it's essentially free. But for organizations that want to embrace it, it's a negligible expense just to keep it running. Uh, they can have it in whichever form they like. Uh, the point is that unless they are serious about what they do, unless they don't want to pass around with it and ask me questions, is why doesn't he put the milestone? Or yeah. why doesn't allow me to do this? That that bothers me. I what don't would Deming do? Like Deming would not tolerate that, right? So either, right? Like exactly. You, you, you couldn't ask, like, why did you say it that way? They like move on, buddy. Yeah. That's right. So they they can go to a website, <laughs> uh, 
They can go to a website. They can download a beautiful, uh, a beautiful. It took us a long time to write it. Uh, introduction to the software, including the instructions. Okay. Um, they can start using with it, enjoy, and start bumping into the cognitive constraint because yeah. you know we have more than ten thousand people following us, yeah. and uh, they love us. We have a groupie like the Rolling Stones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, as I will, yeah, I said Rolling Stones. <laughs> that same age. Are, are you the Keith Richards character? <laughs> right. So we have lots of groupies. And these groupies, they all have intermediate positions in companies. In some cases, they're also yeah. vice presidents. Right. They they profess their mm-hmm. undying love yeah, yeah, yeah. for Deming and Goldratt, but they don't move. So this is a they should be looking at this software as a testament uh, to their unwillingness to do something in their company. Exactly. So this software is a punishment for. <laughs> Their inability to That's move possible. anything in their organization, or as we are in North America now, and we need to be positive. They could see it as a gentle prompt, you know, to do something in their organization. That's awesome. All right, so um, we'll put all the links in. But what are the places that I got a bonus question for you though? But what what are the links that we should be putting in our in the uh, we we have a we we even went through the struggle of building a website so people can download it and don't piss us off. Okay. Uh, it's called essential.com. Okay. And uh, with uh, with three instead of e, so s is essential e double s three, and then essential with three in the middle dot com. Or they can come uh, go to it through our uh, website intelligent management dot ws. This bonus question may or may not make it in the final edit because depending on your answer, um, I don't read much fiction just because I've got such a queue of all these other books. But the one person that I've probably enjoyed the most over the 20 years is Umberto Eco. Oh, Umberto Eco, yeah. Yeah, so just I I figured you, the intellectual that you are, you must have been a huge fan. Oh, 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 but you know, uh, um, Umberto Eco is. uh, um, one of the most eminent uh, intellectuals that Italy has had uh, last century. Uh, he has created, um, he has built, uh, and frankly, thank you for this question. I hope it does make it. I, I love it. No, it will now. Yeah, if you would have oh. said, I don't know who his books, I, I took the risk knowing that you would have. Well, Umberto Eco is Italian, right? So, I know that. That was part of it, but I didn't want to assume all Italians know. You know, yeah, yeah. But, okay. yeah. Umberto Eco did something spectacular. And subliminally, in some way, I, I, he inspired me because what Umberto Eco did was to connect fundamental philosophical knowledge which he did not contribute to the way I did not contribute to fundamental science. Right. But he created the bridge to everyday use of it. So he had the intellectual might to understand um, deep, very deep, the deep philosophical discourse around the human being, and in particular in a field of philosophy called semiotics. Okay. So he had the intellectual might to understand that, and he mm-hmm. had the the method and the thoroughness to translate that into something that people can actually understand. The first example was a book called "The Name of the Rose." Yeah, that he published. Re- one of my, I mean, I love Falco's Pendulum, but "Name of the Rose" to me is yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the name of the rose is a little bit like uh, 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 "Out of the Crisis" because everybody. Uh-huh alleged to have written it, to have read it, but um, I don't think that that many people understood it oh. because there is a Latin language background yeah, yeah, behind I know it, that's one of the and there is a, an amount of history behind it that is not. But again, that is his miracle. So he was able to inspire people yeah. to yeah. become involved. And then, you know, all the books, that, all the movies that you've seen with Tom Hanks and... Uh, and, uh, yeah, all that stuff. Uh, yeah, that's uh, how I found out about it, Bertocco. Friend, I was going on about how much I love the Da Vinci Code. And a friend of mine said, "Do you want to read the grown-up version?" <laughs> the grown-up version. Do you need to read Alphonse Pendulum? Like, oh, okay. And then I realized, oh my god, this is a real book. So, yeah, no, I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of. Or, in the Italian panorama. I bet, I bet. Yeah, no, I've read three or four of his books, but I love. 
I just I wish I had more time to sort of explore that. The, the Maybe one one factoid that you might not know. Uh-huh. Alberto Eco was hired fresh out of university by Adriano Olivetti, the founder of Olivetti. And he remembers oh. as one of the fondest memory that he worked at the production line for six months. Oh, wow. Oh, that's awesome. Adriano Olivetti, which was the, the single greatest industrialist that the Western world has had yeah. in, in the after war, is the guy that promoted the, 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 the computer. You know, the first personal computer was produced by Olivetti. Um, um, Olivetti uh, used to pick his uh, bright students everywhere. So Alberto uh-huh. Eco started philosophy and he brought it to a company that was producing technology because his idea was that uh, uh, knowledge is a systemic entity. So that is made of different parts that they have to interact. So uh, Umberto Eco was one of the, the Olivetti boys. That's uh, awesome. uh, so he, he started to get involved in the computers and, uh, That's uh, great. and uh, you know, because we go on forever, but I, I love that the whole focus pendulum is you could see like now you, if somebody if you read it now, you say like like he thought. But at the time, thinking of the word processor was this magical new thing that all you had to do is feed in some variables and it created a book. And then somehow it took a life of its own. I mean, that is I mean, I mean, somebody like think that word didn't he realize word processor were not that possible. But I always thought if I was ever going to write a book, I'd write a version like that. But using Google, <laughs> well, you right. can use Google to say like it, it sort of took on a. Anyway, I, I'm a big fan of his. Well, this was great. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, Very much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, thank you for coming. It's just sort of my honor to have you, and sort of have you. I'm honored to have you, and uh, we'll do it again. I'll ping you down the road, you know, and and you'll see what you know as Anytime. things sort of move forward. Uh, but again, thank you so much, sir. It's awesome. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.